0: All right, so we're looking at Jesus' triumphal entry in chapter 11, verses 1 through 12 right now. And uh, just to recap, we have talked about uh, the anatomy of Jerusalem, how we've come in from uh, across from Bethany uh, into Bethpage up along the Mount of Olives, and Jesus at Bethpage gets on the donkey and um, it is miraculous, donkey situation is miraculously arranged. And um, so now the crowd that is with Jesus are Galileans. This is his support base. These are the Jews that know him, that love him, that support his ministry. They're coming into Jerusalem. Jesus is relatively unknown in Jerusalem, right? What has been told to the people in Jerusalem is second, third hand, Right? But these people have seen the miracles. They've eaten the miraculous bread from heaven. They've, um, they've, they've been with Jesus. And you can just imagine, they know something's about to happen, right? Uh, they were Jesus, remember it said in that strange verse uh, in the last chapter, Jesus walked on in the head and the disciples were amazed and the people were afraid. They know something is about to happen in Jerusalem. And Jesus gets to Bethpage, and this donkey is waiting for him. Two disciples standing there with the donkey in the middle of the road. And Jesus gets on the donkey. There is a Catholic church there now um, in Bethpage, and it has the mounting uh, the mounting stand where Jesus would have gotten on his horse. Um, it's all pretty elaborate, but it's and very medieval. It's it's um, it's very Catholic, but it's cool to go see. And uh, so. Jesus gets on his donkey, and the people say, This is it. Why would they say this is it? They thought he was going to be the king. Why would they think he would be the king? Because they read Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Somebody look up Zechariah chapter Mm 9, verse 9. 9,
1: verse 9? Yeah. Joyce, greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, daughter of Jerusalem! See, your king comes to you, righteous and having us, having salvation, gentle, and riding on a donkey, mm. on a colt, the foal of a donkey.
0: Okay, so this—when does Zechariah write? When does Zechariah show up as a prophet? Anybody know? Well done. Yeah. Before Christ. <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. (laughs) He is. No, we don't say that here. Um, He shows up in the post-exilic period. He's one of the last three prophets to write. Okay. And so he is one of the last voices before the coming of Jesus. And he says, behold, your king is going to come. He's going to enter dry, riding on a donkey, on the fall of a donkey. Jesus at Bethpage gets on a donkey that's been prepared for him. And the people immediately go into the fields, cut down branches, take off their coats, lay them in the street and yell, Hosanna. What else do they say? Blessed is the coming the of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of who? Our Father David, this is the guy, this is the moment. Okay? now I want you to go to 1 Kings chapter one verses verse 32. David is old, just like Johnny can't stay warm. He gets a little a, a, a young maiden to lay across his feet at night to keep him warm. Not a bad deal, right? Uh, but he's too old to do anything about it. It's just to keep him warm. All right, he's about to kick the bucket, right? And his sons are vying for the throne. But David has determined that Solomon, his youngest son, rather than his older sons, are going to become is going to become the king. Solomon is the second son of Bathsheba, his questionable wife, right? Um. The, the wife of his sin, the wife of his old age. Um, and this child is the last child born to him. But he is the child that God has selected and that David has selected to be his successor. Um, and so in the midst of the political intrigue, uh, we have this story. Read someone, verse 32 to 35.
1: King David said, "Calling Zadok, the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Beniah the son of Jehoiada. When they come before the king, when they came before the king, he said to them, Take your lord's servants with you, and let Sol- and set Solomon my son on my own mule and take him down to Gihon. There have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpet and shout, Long live King Solomon! then you are to go up with him, and he is to come and sit on my throne and reign in my place. I have appointed him ruler over Israel and Judah.
0: All right, so what happens? David says to the prophet, Nathan, and to Zadok the priest, take my son Solomon down to Gihon. Well, where is Gihon? Gihon. Gihon is a spring here in the Kidron Valley, right here. Take him down there and anoint him. Why do you take him down to the spring to anoint him? Because there's water there, okay? Jesus is, when is Jesus anointed with water? At his baptism, right? So Jesus anointing at water really resembles the first part of this. But the second part of this is what we're most interested in. After he is anointed at Gihon, he takes this road up into Jerusalem. Now, the king's palace would have been right here, because the temple hasn't been built yet, in the city of David. Up at the top of the city of David, that's where the king's palace was. And he rides on the king's mule. And he sat on the king's throne. And all the people are rejoicing as Solomon rides up on the way. And that begins the reign of Solomon, the son of David. Jesus now is going to come into Jerusalem from Bethpage riding on a donkey. He's going to pass by Gihon. He's going to come up into the temple. He's going to take the same route. And they said, the kingdom of our father David has come. Just like the other son of David, this son of David is coming into his throne. He's coming into his place. And the disciples are like, yes, it is time. We're about to take our place, right? There's this swell of support. And these triumphant Galilean Jews are all there. They're ready for the coming of the kingdom. And then what happens? Verse 11. Read it. Somebody read verse 11.
1: And he entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking all around, he departed for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already
0: late. I call this the great fizzle. I mean, if you are Jesus' campaign manager you would have said this is the day jesus this is the day you take control this is the day you had popular support all around you you have just fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah. you are now <clears throat> mimicking the coronation and the installation of the son of david solomon and you have entered into jerusalem you enter into the temple with all of the swell of popular support you clear out the temple courts of all of the priests you run out the Romans and you take control. This is it, Jesus. This is the time. If he was to be a political leader, Sunday was the day. But Jesus goes in, he looks around, he checks his watch, and he says, probably goes like this rather than like this. It's getting kind of late. I guess we ought to go get some dinner. What do you think, guys? And the disciples are looking at each other going, what? What? And the people are all going, what do I do with this stick? (laughs) We thought there was going to be a revolution. And you're going home to have dinner? Getting kind of late? What kind of response is that? Well, maybe tomorrow. Save the branch. I don't know. It's just weird, isn't it? Uh Okay. Um, But what we see is Jesus didn't come to be a political leader. He did everything and brought it right up to the edge and then stopped to demonstrate that he was in control. He looks around at everything and then he leaves, okay? He goes back to Bethany. All right, he goes back to Bethany and now uh, we come to this situation um, the cleansing of the temple. In verse 12, it says, The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. This okay. This is harsh. This is harsh poor tree, does it seem unjust what Jesus has just done? Have you ever asked yourself the question, Jesus, what are you doing? This tree, it's not the season for figs. You're demanding figs from a tree that is incapable of giving you figs because it's not the season for figs. And so is it just that you curse the tree? If you're that unjust with a tree, why would I even follow you?
1: It's got to be in some symbolism. Okay,
0: there's a lot going on here. The first thing that you need to realize is that um, we don't understand first century horticulture. Uh, they did, we didn't. What you realize when you go to Israel or when you do a little reading about fig trees at this time is that they produced a fig early in their spring growth before they even leafed out. These pre-figs would show up. They were called pagae. And these pre-figs would would appear on the tree, and then the tree would leaf out, and then the figs would mature and become mature figs, and that's when the harvest would come. So the page appear in late February, early March. The tree then begins to leaf out in April, May, and then by June, July, the fig harvest is ready. Okay, it was not the time for harvest, but these page are edible. Okay, now it's interesting that this takes place in a place called Beth Page. Yes. Beth means house, right? Mm-hmm. Bethel means house of God. El means God, Elohim, all that. Beth El means house of God. Beth Lachem means house of bread. Beth Lachem is bread. Beth Page means house of early figs. All right? Um, and so those are just a few things for you to think about. We'll come back to it because Jesus is going to come back to it in in a few minutes. So I, now...
1: I would comment on that fig tree. <clears throat> when I lived in Florida, we had a fig tree growing right outside my bedroom window. And believe you me, those early figs are just barely edible. <laughs> It ain't very good.
0: But when you're hangry. Yeah.
1: <laughs> That's
0: right.
1: <laughs> and if you're 16 years old, well, you, you uh, try them all the time.
0: <laughs> well, I think about it. When I lived in Costa Rica, uh, we lived in, I was working at a school, and the kids were always climbing, climbing the mango trees and eating the green mangoes. Ooh. And they are as sour as they can be, but, you know. When you're hungry, you eat green mangoes. Put a little salt on them, a little lemon juice. They're not bad. Okay, so anyway, that's another another story for another time. So uh, we'll come back to the fig tree. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts, and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And... As he taught them, he said, it is, not, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So Jesus comes into the temple and he flies off the handle and he gets ticked off and he goes out of control. Is that true? No. Not according no. to this. Not according to this. <laughs> How do we know that Jesus did not lose control? Because he's, he's teaching. Yeah. <laughs> Because he's God. That's a safe response. He's also human. How do we know that Jesus doesn't lose control and get angry and lose his temper? We, have been <laughs> we know it because Jesus has already come to the temple. He came there yesterday and he said it, he looked around and he saw everything. So this doesn't catch him by surprise. Right? This was a calculated decision made by Jesus. Now, remember what's going on in the temple. The temple courts are controlled by the high priest and his gang of religious nutjobs. Okay? These guys are not so religious, they're really more businessmen. As a matter of fact, the high priesthood was purchased by Caiaphas and Annas, from the Romans because it was lucrative. And so they paid a huge bribe to the Romans to be appointed high priest. They weren't even of the Aaronic family, okay? This was a plum. Whoever controlled the the priesthood controlled the temple business. Didn't you have to be Levi to be a priest? You had to be of the family of Aaron of of the tribe of Levi. But these guys bought it just because they had enough money to bribe the Romans. The Romans sold it because they knew it was lucrative. And so what they would do, they filled up this outer court area out here, which is known as the court of the Gentiles. It's known as the court of the Gentiles because that's as far as a a Gentile could go. Beyond that, the inner courts of the temple, the court of women, the court of men, the court of the priests, all were only open to Jews, right? And then, and then only priests, and then only the priests that were appointed to go into the holy place, and then only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement, right? And so the, the temple is a, a series of restrictive courts leading up to the presence of God. This is the outermost court. It is available to Gentiles, okay? And so, as a result, um, this is where they set up shop. And because uh, all of the money of the time had a picture of Caesar or someone on it, it you couldn't have a graven image in the temple. So you had to change it for temple money, shekels. And so in order to do that, they got you on the exchange rate. Right. (laughs) Right? And then, not only that, you've got all these sheep and goats and bulls and rams and whatever for sacrifice. And that's important, right? Mm -hmm. Because you have to have an unblemished sheep. And they're going to find a blemish on your sheep if you brought a sheep. But most people aren't shepherds, right? So they would go to the temple with money to buy a sheep. And so they would charge you an exorbitant amount of money for an approved, authenticated sheep in the temple courts so that you can make your sacrifice. It's like buying something at the airport, Mm -hmm. right? right? You, you, you can't help it. If they're going to charge you five bucks for a bottle of water, what are you going to do? You're going to leave the airport and buy something for two bucks outside of a quick trip? No, you're going to spend the five bucks, right? And that's what they're doing. They're making money hand over fist. And this is their biggest festival. This is the time. This is Christmas for them, all right? Jesus goes into the temple courts, turns over the money changers' tables, Starts driving out the sheep and the goats. And these guys go nuts. If they weren't already against Jesus, they are galvanized against Jesus. Jesus has just accelerated the timetable. It's now time for him to provoke them to do what they're going to do anyway, and that is kill him, so that by Friday he'll be dead. Okay? Jesus has intentionally started the clock. He kicked the hornet's nest, all right? And he does it intentionally, and he does it prophetically. He's standing up to these bullies, and he quotes two scriptures in the process. These two scriptures are conflated together. One comes from Isaiah, and one comes from Jeremiah. Isaiah 56. Somebody look it up. Evan. Read it.
1: Those I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations.
0: Pretty good. Very, very good. All right. If you read up a couple other verses, it says very specifically, he's speaking to the foreigners who will come and worship in the temple. Because he's talking about the place where the court of the Gentiles was made for, right? My house will be a house of prayer, right? But what has happened if the Gentiles come into the court of the Gentiles where they're allowed to be in order to worship? What do they encounter there? A marketplace. Sheep poop.
1: <laughs>
0: you ever been to a livestock market? Yep. Smelly. It stinks. It's noisy. It's not a place of worship, right? So you've got all this dung everywhere. You've got these sheeps bleeding and, 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 and byeing, and whatever sheep do, right? And they're stinking and they're everywhere. And you got doves and you got dove poop and you got, um, you got money changers there. And there's just this desecration of the temple. And these, this was supposed to be a house of prayer for the Gentiles, but you've turned it into something else, okay? Now we come to this den of robbers bit, Jeremiah chapter 7. So turn to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7 is very important. Very, very important, all right? All right. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. This is called the Temple Discourse. Jeremiah's Temple Discourse. He does two of these, one in the gates of the temple and one in the gates of the palace. Okay, this one is the Temple Discourse. This is what the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. So who is this for? It's for us. It's for churchgoers.
1: this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord.
0: If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner and the fatherless and the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods on your own, uh, gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But Look. You are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and perjury and burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. What is a den of robbers? You ever drive through Missouri and see the signs for Jesse James hideout? (laughs) It's like that dude hid out everywhere. Um, A hideout for a robber is not a place where there are a lot of robbers. It's a place where robbers feel safe, right? It's their hideout. It's where they hide their stuff. It's where they feel safe from the long arm of the law. And that's what Jesus, that's what, Jeremiah is saying about the people of Jerusalem that they believed the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord is God's mailing address. This is where God lives. He's never going to allow Jerusalem to fall. He's never going to allow the temple to be destroyed because this is where he lives. So as long as we keep this little place rolling, everything's going to be fine. We can do whatever we want Monday through Saturday. And as long as we come here on Sunday and we do our little religious ditty, we're okay. Security. You ever hear that? You think half the people who come to church think that way? Jeremiah says, boulder dash. <laughs> you are not safe because God has been watching. God has been watching.
1: Dan, it's real interesting that Jeremiah repeats the temple of the Lord three times because the only other place in Scripture I remember anything being repeated three times that would have been the ultimate is in Isaiah, holy, 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 referring to the Lord So I think there's a real...
0: In Hebrew, when you repeat something three times, it's emphasis. It's absolute. Okay? And so they think that the temple is absolutely safe. It's not. Okay? Now, the next part is really very interesting. Because he says in verse 12, Now go to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called to you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your ancestors. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all of your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. Okay, what is Shiloh? Shiloh is the place. It's a little hilltop in the hill country of Ephraim where the tabernacle was permanently installed after the conquest of um, Moses and Joshua when Joshua comes into the land, and they finally achieve peace. They pick this little hilltop in the hill country of Ephraim where Joshua was an Ephraimite, and he puts the tabernacle there. And it stayed there, you know, for how long? 400 years. Well, if you set up a tent... For 400 years, guess what? It becomes permanent, right? You replace the little fabric wall that they had out in the desert with a stone wall, right? And you build houses for the priests, and you build uh, storage facilities for the grain offerings, and you build sheep pens and goat pens on, out around the edges, and you do all of these things. You build a permanent installation. This was, in essence, the first temple, And they thought they were safe there. The Philistines came in, if you remember the story, and the two corrupt priests took the ark and they went out against the Philistine army thinking that all of these magic things would protect them. And God says, I don't care about that stuff. And the ark was taken prisoner and the temple was destroyed. Never to be rebuilt again. So I want you to look at this little graph that I've put on the bottom of this paper. I think if you look at the history of the Old Testament uh, and the New Testament, the entire biblical period, you can graph it in, in relation to the temple, to the temple of the Lord. So we start in captivity in Egypt and Moses delivers the people and Joshua, and God says, build me a house, right? Build me uh, a tabernacle that I may dwell with my people. Uh, Exodus chapter 28, verse 8. And they do, or 25, verse 8. And so they do, and now it's established in Shiloh. And then what happens? The period of the judges. And the judges, we, we have this decline away from God, Right? And by the end of the period of judges, which comes in the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel, that first temple is destroyed by the Philistines. Okay? And then we have David. We have Samuel come along and we have King Saul and he's kind of a mess. But David is the one we've been waiting for and he brings the people back to God and he builds himself a palace in Jerusalem and he looks out from his window and he says, why am I living in a palace made out of cedar? And my God who put me here is living in a tent. This is crazy. I'm going to build you a house that's worthy of your glory. And God says, good idea. You're not the guy. Your son's going to do it. All right? And so Solomon builds the temple and we have the first temple, the Solomonic temple. And then we have the period of the kings. We don't even get through Solomon's whole reign before he starts turning away from God. And the decline begins. And it ends with Jeremiah saying, you think you can trust in this house? Look back at what God did to the first place up on the hilltop in Shiloh. He's going to do the same thing in Jerusalem. And sure enough, within his lifetime, the temple is destroyed by the Babylonians. The next thing that happens is that God, after the captivity, calls his people back. And Ezra comes back and builds the foundation of the temple again. And we have Zerubbabel. And they rebuild the temple. And the second temple is built. Now, King Herod the great is going to trick it out, but it's the same temple. The same temple that was built by these guys. It's called the second temple.
1: It's the, interesting the Jews forgot their history because God did destroy that temple once with Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and if he destroyed it once, he can destroy
0: That's exactly, temple. That's exactly the point that Jeremiah is making about the destruction of Solomon's temple. And so... We get to the second temple that's been rebuilt and then we have these religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these high priests, all of this stuff, all this corruption that's going on and Jesus stands in the same place as Jeremiah. He's standing in the same place about 30 years before the destruction of the temple and he speaks the words of Jeremiah. And he says, remember what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 7. That you've turned this house into a house of robbers. And you think you're safe here. And you think it'll never be destroyed. You got another thing coming because God is watching you. And he doesn't care about this building. He cares about your heart. And your heart is turned away from him. See, Jesus is exactly where Jeremiah was. And so you see how... Jeremiah's passage ties back all the way to the Shiloh temple and then reaches forward through Jesus' prophecy. He reaches back to Jeremiah, and this whole thing is linked together prophetically. You see how that works? And we see this all with this, this, the house of the Lord. Okay? Does that make sense now? You see why Jesus said that? It's one little phrase. And that one little phrase unlocks this, this whole thing. The, the entire history of the people of God in relation to the presence of God is manifested in the, in the temple. All right, known now. And they made a connection and they didn't. Of course, just like we never make connections, right? <laughs> <laughs> same, same dog bit us. All right, now. we they did make you, That's why yeah. they to kill us. <laughs> yeah. let's, let's, let's finish this up before, um, before our brother leaves here. Um, go back to Mark 11, and Jesus is now, he leaves the place. The chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. They're furious, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, now this is Monday morning, right? No, yeah, this is Tuesday morning. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Did you notice the sandwich here? Fig tree, temple, fig tree. It's a sandwich. Okay? Mark and sandwich. Starts the fig tree story, interrupted by the temple story, fig tree story. So we know the fig tree is related to the temple, right? Now think about it. Jesus goes to a place called Beth Page, the house of early figs, looking for figs. And it looks good. The tree from a distance is full of leaves. It's a healthy tree. It should have fruit. It should have early fruit right? It has all the evidence of fruit from the temple. From a, from a distance, the temple looks good. Yeah. It looks beautiful. It looks spiritual. It looks religious. All these people are coming to it, right, to worship the Lord. But when you get up close, there's no fruit. Jesus comes to the house of prayer looking for righteousness and justice and doesn't find it just as he came to the house of figs looking for figs and doesn't find them. Mm-hmm. You see how the two are related? Mm-hmm. And so the, the fig tree is a picture of the temple system. It's all show and no fruit. Mm-hmm. It isn't church like that many times. All show, no fruit. Looks good, looks healthy. But is it doing Anything? Is it producing the fruit of righteousness? Is it a house of prayer? Is it a place where the Gentile or the foreigner, where the the widow, where the orphan are welcomed, where they're cared for? Or is it a place of oppression? You see the connection? Isn't that awesome? And so you begin to pull these things together. And then Jesus says, Peter's all excited. Look, Jesus, the, the tree that you curse is now dead. Jesus is faith in God. Mm. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart and believes what, they, what has happened, it will be done for them. Now, it's interesting. If you stand at Beth Page when we went there to Israel, you mm-hmm. stop the bus and he, the the guy the guide said, okay, everybody out of the bus. Cross the street, stand over there on the sidewalk. Forty of us get out of the bus and we're standing on the sidewalk. Cars are whizzing by, buses, it's crazy, right? Donkeys? No, no, no. And, um, and he said, now look to the south. We look to the south and you see this conical mountain. And it is the Herodian. The Herodian is a fortress palace that was built by Herod the Great. And he had taken and built a palace on a hilltop. And then he took the hill next door and he had all his slave labor remove all of the dirt from that hill. They basically dug the entire mountain up and they built large earthen walls up around that palace and it looks like a volcano and the palace is down inside of this volcano so it's completely protected by these earthen walls and you can see the base of the other hill right next to it and so jesus says if from this very place where you can see if someone says take this mountain and move it right (laughs) this king moved the mountain right and throw it into the sea. And from there, you can see the Dead Sea. From Beth Page. you can see the Dead Sea over there across the wilderness of Judah. Which is, and so Jesus is saying, you know, you think the kings of this world are great and powerful? You ain't seen nothing yet. You think that these people, their power is going to last forever? It's going to be destroyed. You think that this temple is going to last forever? I'm going to destroy it. It's going to be destroyed. God is going to do amazing things. The things that you think are are eternal are not eternal. God is in control and God is powerful. Pray. Draw close to God. He's the winner, okay? He's the one that's going to win this thing. It's such an amazing passage, isn't it? As you begin to put it together, you begin to see what Jesus was saying. Jesus is making some very powerful statements about who he is, about the future of the temple, and um, about his messianic kingdom. All right, pretty cool. There it is, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord God, that on this uh, sleet driven day, we can come together and and be excited by what you are doing and what you have done and who you are. And uh, we pray that you would bless us as we continue to draw close to you. May we not trust in these walls, Lord God. May we not hide behind our religion, but live a life of righteousness and truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
1: We get a. Car.